Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. Uh, my first major transition in life was my transition to college. I had lived uh, a great home growing up, great parents, uh, and then made this transition to a new place with new people and new ideas and this new culture. And I got to make most of the decisions in my life at that point. And I made some good decisions. And I made some other decisions. (laughs) But I got to choose. I got to choose what it was that I wanted to be a part of. And so I chose to just kind of throw myself wholeheartedly into cheering for a sports team that that wasn't that great, that I had never heard of growing up. You know, the mighty Wolverines of Division III football. I cheered for them like crazy. I cheered for people that I had no idea who they were because their success was my success. And I got involved in certain things. I chose to have a radio show for a while, and then I got kicked off the air, and that's a different story. That's (laughs) under the category of other decisions that I made in college. Um... Culturally, I kind of became a part of what our campus was about. We had these amazing grassy quads right in the middle of campus, and culture at the college I went to said that you never walked on the grass, you always stayed on the sidewalk. Even if the shortest point between A and B was directly across there, which I tried a couple times, you get about four or five steps into the grass, and then from everywhere, voices would scream at you, get off the grass. And this was known even by the colleges in our area. When we played sports at other colleges, they would chant, we can walk on grass, we can walk. (laughs) And our fans would chant, we're going to be your boss, just to try and get back at them. But it stuck with me, that culture, even to this day, I still walk on sidewalks all the way to where the corner is and turn, don't cut that corner, don't walk on that grass. It was also reflected in the way that I dressed as I popped my collar and tied my sweater around my neck and pegged my acid wash jeans Well, I was wearing my penny loafers, and no, there's no picture. I'm not going to show you a photo of that. It was pre-social media days, so there weren't a whole lot of photos going around. But there were ideas and activities that I chose to be a part of that shaped me truly in a great way and continue to shape me today. There were also ideas and activities at college, as with all colleges, that I chose to not be a part of, that I chose to be set apart from. I got invited to certain places or to be a part of certain things with certain groups of people that I thought, I don't want those things shaping me for the rest of my life. Choosing to be a part of and set apart from, that's a big issue. And we all have to learn how to do this. We all have to learn how to navigate the landscape of where we live. We have to learn how to navigate culture both on a micro level and a macro level. There's a lot of micro cultures that we go in and out of. Each family has its own culture. Your job, your workplace has its own culture. Your school that you go to has its own culture. And all of those micro cultures are set in in the macro culture of this world and in the values of this world. And so we have to figure out what ideas and ideologies and activities that we're going to give our time to and what things that we need to stand apart from. We have to learn what to be a part of and what to be set apart from. Because if we're going to faithfully and genuinely live our lives for Jesus while retaining our influence and our identity, we have to figure this out. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. We're kicking off a new series 
It's called The Prophet Daniel's Fantastical Guide to Thriving in Babylon. Pretty sweet, right? I didn't write that, but that's a great title. And, and uh, so appropriately enough, we are going to be in the book of Daniel. So if you want to open your Bibles and turn there, if you want to grab one from the, from the rack there in front of you, it's on page 725. Now, this is an old story. Daniel 1 begins in 605 B.C., but I don't want us to forget as we launch into this story that these are very real people who have very real courage and very real convictions. And this might be ancient history, but it's completely relevant to us today. And before we dive into today's story, we want to set a little bit of background. Give us the backdrop of Daniel that's going to lay the groundwork for how we understand the rest of the entire book. You see, during this era, Babylon was the preeminent power in the world. They had conquered the Assyrians and set themselves up as the preeminent power. And King Nebuchadnezzar was their most powerful and well-known king. And here's a map of the region. And if you like to kind of look at this and give you a little bit of context, you can see kind of Jerusalem and, and Judah and that area on the left side and Babylon, the capital city. It's Babylon Empire, but the capital city Babylon over there. And that might give you a little perspective. Well, we want to start in Daniel chapter 1 and just get a little bit of background. It says, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He's conquering the world at this time. He conquers Judah. He conquers Jerusalem. And he takes important things from there. He takes valuable artifacts and he takes valuable people and he takes them back to Babylon. Verse 3, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and suited to serve in the royal palace. I'm out. Wouldn't Wouldn't have made the cut. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them daily rations of food and wine from his own kitchens, and they were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So get this picture. Babylon's conquering the world, and they're taking the good stuff, and they're taking the good people, and they're bringing them to Babylon, and then they're setting them on a three-year journey of indoctrination, of re-education, of cultural immersion. And the idea is so that they will lose their former culture and gain this new Babylonian culture. It's called subjugation through assimilation. That way it would quiet any type of rebellion. They would bring these people in, the best and the brightest, and show them how good they were and train them up in their ways so that their rebellion would be quieted and they would lose their cultural heritage and their values and their faith and everything about that and lean into Babylonian society. Now, the book of Daniel is mostly about Daniel, but it's about a couple other guys as well that you might remember. On the left side of the screen, this is their their Jewish names. On the right side of the screen, that's their new Babylonian names. And you know Daniel, not Belteshazzar, And probably because he wrote the book, we're not doing Belteshazzar's fantastical guide to surviving. We're doing Daniel's. But then you probably know the other three guys by their new names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their names were changed so that they would, again, lose their heritage. All the new names were after the gods of Babylon. All the old names were after the one true God. 
And that played a big part in society. And it's important to note that Babylonian society was pluralistic and polytheistic. And pluralism is just this idea that there's not one absolute ultimate truth to live by, that there's a whole lot of truths and you kind of get to choose your own truth. Sound a little familiar? Yes. Polytheism is this idea that they had many gods. In Judah, where they came from, they worshiped the one true God. When they got to Babylon, they discovered that there were thousands of gods. Historians would say that in the city of Babylon, there were over a thousand temples to a thousand different gods. They would have seen it everywhere. In Babylon, their gods were part of the material world. They worshiped water and earth, wind and fire, and all of the elements. And their gods were kept within the natural universe. And, and somewhat even subject to the natural laws, which meant that they were a naturalistic and materialistic people. They, their job as they prayed to these gods was to appease them so the world worked better. Daniel and the guys are coming in with this sense that there's one true God who exists outside of this world, who created all of this world out of nothing, and he's the one that gets to speak meaning and value into this world. And that's the context of how our story begins. You have these guys who are ripped away from their families, ripped away from their homes and their communities and their way of life and their faith, and they are dragged to a strange part of the world with new customs and new value and new gods and new culture. And they had to be absolutely overwhelmed. They were just absolutely deer in the headlights. And so how did they maintain a foundational growing relationship with God in this culture, in this pluralistic culture, in this culture that didn't believe that there was one true God. As they lived in the public eye, how did they maintain this relationship with God? And that's why the book of Daniel is so relevant to our lives. It's not just a travel log. It's not like we're going to teach you how to thrive in Babylon if you ever get there someday. It's because this is our culture. We live in a pluralistic culture. We live in a culture that continues to push faith into the margins where statements of absolute truth are met with increased antagonism. We continue, I believe, increasingly to live in the public eye as well through social media. And so how do we navigate our current culture? How do we have a foundational, thriving relationship with God that continues to grow? You see, I believe we can kind of slide into one or two different camps. We can kind of decide that there's one or two different ways that's right for us. The first way is the way of assimilation. How do we navigate culture? Well, we just assimilate to what culture is. And that's just what that means. It means to become a part of, to be absorbed into, to become similar to. And if you begin this process of assimilation, culture says, congratulations, way to go. But many Christians would say, that's compromise. But here's the thing. There's some good things about assimilation. There's some good things about being with people. There's some good things about it. You have influence. You get to bring grace and truth to people. But there's also some negative things about it. And some of the negatives is we run the risk of being colonized by the world if we tend to always live in this camp. 
We run the risk of having a pluralistic society decide what our values and beliefs are. And compromise can then become commonplace and we can begin to lose our identity. And then on the other side of this, we can kind of take the opposite approach. We can believe that assimilation is not for us. That's not what we're called to. We're called to separation. We're called to be separate to be apart from, to be distinct, to be detached. And if we go down this track, you know what culture says? Culture says, oh, you're narrow-minded and judgmental. But many Christians would say, yeah, this is how you live righteously. And there's some good things about this track. There's some good things about keeping your identity and not being constantly barraged in your worldview by culture. But there's some negative things about living in this camp. Some of the negatives are we lose influence. The world doesn't understand us anymore. We text PTL and they're like, please talk later or potatoes taste lovely. I don't know exactly what it is that you're telling me right now. And we can lose the ability to have any influence and take grace and truth where it needs to be. And another danger of this idea of separation is it's not just a static position. It's not a stationary position. It's a trajectory. Separation is a trajectory that tends to take you continually away from the people that you need to be close to. And what I think we tend to think that this is how we navigate culture. Either we just assimilate to culture or we separate from culture. And it's easy to kind of stand off and pick a camp and talk about those people, or do we come over here and we talk about those people? You know who those people are. But if we take this either-or approach, we have to ask, at what cost? Neither one is good. Either we lose identity or influence. Either we're compromising or detaching. And, and I believe it's not an either-or. It's a both and there's a third way that we see in Daniel. And I would say that we need to be a people who are culturally connected and decidedly distinct. We need to be culturally connected. We need to be connected, and yet we need to retain our distinctness. We need to be engaged and leaning in and invested, and we need to be steadfastly different. We need to be a part of, and we need to be set apart from retaining both influence and identity. And we need to figure out how that we live in that tension. I'm wearing a women's ministry t-shirt. I want to be culturally connected, and yet I'm decidedly distinct. <laughs> That's how we need to live in this. And we see that lived out beautifully even here in chapter 1 of Daniel. And I, we're going to see three different ways that we can live. Three different ways that we can live culturally connected and decidedly distinct. We're going to see the foundation that we need to have and how we can be this and this. And so we're going to read this story in Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 8. It says, But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. 
Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after him and the guys, and he said, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Boo. (laughs) Sorry. Personal commentary. Daniel said, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. And the attendant agreed to test them. Great story. How do we remain culturally connected and decidedly distinct? I think the first thing, the foundation of it all is being devoted to God. And I believe we see that in these four young men. When we're first introduced to them, it's through the lens of exile. It's through the lens of them being trained up in the ways of Babylon. But before their training in the ways of Babylon, there was a deeper, far more significant, far more foundational training that had taken place. And as I've sat with this story over the past week, I've marveled at how well they respond to these incredible changes in their lives. And I've marveled at the fact that there must have been an incredibly firm foundation in their lives. They were devoted to God. Because there's a couple things that I looked at immediately that I think would take them sideways. First would be the questions. The questions that would run through your mind in such a scenario would have absolute ability to take you sideways. We would be asking the same questions. Why, God? Why did this happen? Why did you let me get carried away from my family? Don't you care? Aren't you the all-powerful God? Aren't we your people? And why should I suffer for the immorality, injustice, and idolatry of other people? Tough questions. Questions we ask just in smaller moments. These guys got ripped away from everything and thrown into something entirely different. I also think they would have looked around with awe at Babylon. I think Babylon at this point in time was the religious, cultural, commercial, and intellectual center of the world. Here's a picture that Abednego took with his drone (laughs) over over Babylon, the capital city here. But the historian Herodotus says that the walls surrounding the city were 320 feet high, 56 miles long, 80 feet thick. They used to have chariot races on the tops of the walls around the city. They had some pretty sweet hanging gardens that you've heard about probably as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They had a 280-foot temple to their chief god. And if you can imagine these guys from another land walking around and thinking, wow, there's power here. There's something going on in this city pretty big. This city has to have some type of foundation, both intellectually and theologically. And maybe this would have caused them to question their background. As they saw all of these temples to all of these gods in this big, amazing place with so many advancements, would they have thought that their idea of one God was archaic? They would have had questions. They would have seen what was going on around them. But somehow, they came through these moments with their faith intact. They were devoted to God. And honestly, it made me want to applaud their parents. And it made me want to applaud their Sunday school teachers and the people that faithfully served in children's church for them and the people that took them to camp so that they could make commitments 
to God. There was a foundation there. Something was going on there. And for those of you in the room who pour into children and youth here at Salem Alliance, I want to say thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for laying a firm foundation. For those of you that have yet to find a place in children's and youth ministry, talk to me after the service. We have room for you. Because there's going to be the stories. I think someday we'll meet Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And I think maybe they'll be like, oh, yeah, we had a pretty cool story. But here, I'd love to introduce you to, this is my parents. And this person, this is my Sunday school teacher from the temple. They were amazing. There's going to be all kinds of stories like that. You probably don't know who Edward Kimball is. Probably never heard of the name Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. He had a group of really rowdy boys that he was just faithfully committed to, and they tested his patience all of the time, and yet he just prayed for them and leaned into them. And one day he felt like God was telling him to go out and visit them, so he went and found one of his uh, young guys. He was stocking shelves in the back of the shoe store, and he just shared grace and truth with this guy. And this, this youngster gave his life to Christ that day. His name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody had quite an impact and, and shared faith everywhere. And people came to Christ. And then this guy named Mordecai Ham came to Christ through that ministry. And Mordecai Ham then had a ministry. And this guy named Billy Graham came to Christ. And you can just see, it just goes on. There's going to be stories like that. Stories about the firm foundations, stories about devoting our lives to God. And so I think the first handle from this, the handle that allows us to be culturally connected and decidedly distinct is just this, in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. And it just means dedicate, devote, that Christ is our firm foundation. Christ is our identity that allows us to have the influence, the eternal influence that we need to have. The second thing I think we see in this story, and it leans a little bit this way, is this idea of gracious resistance. Let's talk about the food in the story for just a minute. The food is a huge perk of this job. It's food from the king's kitchen. It's the best of the best. You've been ripped away from your homeland, but at least you get to eat at the king's all-you-can-eat buffet. That's got to count for something. Don't mess that up. I mean, imagine that you're at school, you're at college, and you're eating in the cafeteria every day. And in my experience, that was not good food. But someone comes up to you and says, I've hired a gourmet chef to prepare these amazing meals for the rest of your education. Would you like that? Yes, absolutely you would. And you would say, no matter what else happens in my world, at least I have the food thing going. And if I'm going to protest, it's going to be in other areas. I'm not going to protest the food. But Daniel, Daniel said, I choose salad over steak. That's what he said. And I want to, I want to pull Daniel aside at this moment. And I want to be like, Daniel, listen, there's a compromise here. It's called steak salad. It's really good. And we could just lean into this thing and you're going to love it. Besides, Pastor Steve, a couple weeks ago, he said, we need to be stakeholders. So... Sorry. <laughs> Little dad joke for you there. Right, but that's how, we get, that's how we get guys to events at church, isn't it? We don't ever have a salad cook-off. I don't do that. 
We pull out the grill because that's, that's what they want. Now, we're not 100% sure why Daniel chose to protest in this way. God had put certain rules in place. When God was teaching his people how to be holy, he was saying, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, to other gods. And probably that's why they chose the protest in this way. Probably their meals came from the animals that were sacrificed and then barbecued for them. There was no explicit prohibition against wine only in its excess, but this wine was probably used to toast the other gods. And so they chose to abstain from these things. They chose to be decidedly distinct from those things. And honestly, they were choosing holiness. What they were choosing was holiness because they had devoted themselves to God. And most likely there was fear in this decision. Babylon was all about conformity. And if you were going to if you were going to buck the system, you were going to stand out. You were going to lose credibility. Who wants to draw attention to themselves? Who wants to stand out for their faith? Who wants to take their religious convictions and put them on display? We've seen what happens when people do that. We know that culture kind of tries to beat that down and say, what makes you think you're right in those things? And so we shy away. We've had those experiences maybe in our own lives. My youngest daughter and I, one of our favorite things to do in the evening is ride our bikes around our neighborhood. We have about a three and a half mile loop that we do. And for us, mostly it's a chance to just get out and talk and be outside. And if it's warm out, that's what we're doing. Well, several months ago, we're out riding bikes and we get onto this road uh, that has no bike lane. So we're as far right as we can be. She's in front of me. I'm here. And the speed limit's 35 miles an hour on this road, which isn't awful. But I can hear a car uh, coming up behind me. There's no car coming. So I know that the car's going to swerve out like is appropriate and go around us. And so as we're pedaling along, all of a sudden I hear this whir and then this smack on my backside. Wait a minute. I pull off into the gravel and, and Hannah stops and I, that car, it hit me. I just got a 35 mile an hour spanking <laughs> from that car somehow. And I didn't know because I'm still on my bike. I'm still alive. So I don't know what happened. The car slows down. It kind of turns around and comes back. And the driver, he, he looks and he's holding his side view mirror in his hand that my backside knocked off into his car. He's like, sorry, the sun was bright. I'm a little frustrated, obviously. But we, he goes and we go and, and, and I'm okay. But what happened? The next time that we went to go bike riding, I'm thinking about it. I'm not going back to that street. We're not riding on that side. And anytime I hear a car behind me, I'm over, I'm looking over my shoulder. And we can start to live that way. Gracious resistance Stand up for my faith. I know what happens when you do that. I, I'm always looking over my shoulder, waiting for something to come by and smack me. I, I'll, just, I'll just fly below the radar. If, if I, I don't want to stand out for my beliefs, but they had devoted themselves to God. Sure, it would have caused questions. Sure, people would have stared at them. Sure, people would have talked behind their backs. And I almost want to be like, boys, eat the steak. Just eat the steak, but they wouldn't do it. They graciously resisted. And I love that, that graciousness was a part of it. You do not read that Daniel stood up on the table and, and banged a fork against his goblet and said, listen to this, everyone. Then he pulls the guy aside. And he kind of graciously shares his story. You see, our knowledge of truth does not give us license for aggression. 
We have to learn how to balance our courage with gentleness, our courage with graciousness. People have dignity. And we need to drop the attitude sometimes. We've seen protests done poorly. That's how we know who Westboro Baptist Church is. Because we've seen protests gone wrong, but these guys didn't do it. They got permission. They got a trial basis. They were gracious about it. They were quiet about it. And their faithfulness not only blessed them, it blessed the guy that was watching them. Look at verse 20. It says, whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. God blessed their being decidedly distinct. God blessed their gracious resistance. And so the moral of the story is this. If we graciously resist, we will become intellectual and administrative geniuses. We'll get promoted. We'll have favor from the king. All right, that's not the moral of this story. We don't want to take what they did and overlay it on our lives. This is what God did for these particular people at this particular time who were called to this particular role to play. But there are times that we need to stand up and graciously resist. And I think the handle for this uh, is just eat more salad. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to say. No, I put that there just so that you remember that that's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not really telling us what we need to graciously resist, but there are things, and there's some tough things. And so I would say this. We need to be people who pray about the what and the how. God, how do you want me to stand up? How do you want me to be distinct? How do you want me to, in a way, be set apart from certain things? For your name, for your glory. And then I would also add this, that there are times we will need to ask for forgiveness when we've done it wrong or are doing it wrong. And so just keep that in mind. Maybe you've stood up before and it's been in an unhealthy way. And lastly, I would say this, and this one I believe leads, leans more towards this side, and we need to hear this as well, that we need to have a deep concern for where we live. We need to be connected to our culture. You may have heard the phrase, um, in the world, not of the world. And oftentimes in Christian circles, people use that phrase to go this direction, towards separation, not towards assimilation. That phrase is not written in Scripture that way. There is a general idea behind it. You find that in John 17. But what Jesus is saying is that we don't belong to the world. But he does say we're to be a part of it. As a matter of fact, in his prayer in John 17, he's praying to God on our behalf. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. And later on, he says, I am sending them into the world. That that's where we are supposed to be. We need to be connected. We don't get to stand off aloof and judgmental and talk about how broken that world is. Well, that world's broken. You know why the world's broken? Because we're broken. And we've added our brokenness to the world. We're part of that broken problem. We need to take ownership of that. And we need to be connected to that. And we need to be connected to our culture. In a passage of scripture in Jeremiah written to these specific exiles, God is saying this, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. He didn't say, I want you to just be out of it. Separate yourselves as far as you can from your city. 
He says, work for your city. Work for the peace of your city. And I love that Daniel resisted, but not as an observer. He resisted as a participant in his culture. He studied hard. He leaned in. He was not trying to sabotage everything because the king was counting on him for good advice. He wasn't like, oh, that big stone wall, that's good fortification. It'd look better if it was straw. That'd be great. And, and maybe, maybe uh, you're spending your money in the wrong places. You know, when Apple comes out, don't invest in Apple. You need Enron. Anyway, he was not, he was not doing that. He's not trying to sabotage his community. He was working for his city. Salem needs us to be connected. If Salem is going to be a city at peace with God, we need to be culturally connected. And so I would say, what is it that we are doing to serve our neighborhood? What is it that we are doing to serve our city? And maybe you have this conversation with your family. What's something that we can do so that our area can be at peace with God? You see, exile is the human condition. We're all exiles. We're all waiting to get home. But while we're here, we need to be culturally connected and decidedly distinct. We need to be devoted to God as the foundation. There are times we graciously resist, and at all times, we have a deep concern for where we live. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thanks for this story. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it says about courage and conviction in the lives of these guys. And I just want to pray that over us this morning. I just pray your courage over this place. Give us the courage to live as we should live, fully devoted to you. God, give us wisdom and discernment about the what and how of resisting graciously. And God, give us just a passion and a desire to serve our city. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.